0: Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today, we will be talking to William P. Hustwit about his book, Integration Now Alexander V. Holmes and the End of Jim Crow Education, 50 Years After the Landmark Decision. Professor Hustwit is Associate Professor of History and Chair of the History Department at Birmingham Southern College, where he specializes in 20th Century U.S. History. Dr. Hustwit, welcome to the show.
1: Hi there. Thanks for having me.
0: To start off, could you tell us about the limitations of the case Brown v. Board of Education, and what are the limits of the scholarly focus on Brown?
1: Sure. So to begin, the Brown v. Board of Education ruling was in 1954, and this was the Supreme Court ruling that invalidated Plessy v. Ferguson and, you know, anything that was any kind of state-sanctioned school segregation has appeared in the years following the new Jim Crow state constitutions in the South. And so Brown is a monumental decision in calling for school desegregation and then the possibility of the integration of the races in education. So it really launches one of the most important, if not the most important, educational reform in the country's history. And So there have also been a lot of historians and scholars over the years who have also recognized or criticized Brown for limitations that were built into that Supreme Court ruling. And this is basically the easy argument about the limits of Brown v. Board is that the court and the uh, lower courts essentially failed to desegregate the school's. Brownway really produced what's been called a backlash of white supremacist outrage at the ruling, and that's Michael Klarman's argument. And there are many others who have criticized Brown though. They say that the ruling didn't secure racial change and wasn't as successful as legislation or executive action was. So in particular, there's a group of scholars who will emphasize the 1964 Civil Rights Act is being more critical than the court rulings in bringing about actual school desegregation. That the, the 64 Civil Rights Act really gave the federal government the ability to check funding for school districts that were not in compliance with school desegregation. And so, some scholars note that as being the real teeth that the Brown ruling itself didn't have in terms of getting the school districts comply with school desegregation. I think that, in my own opinion. In terms of limitations of Brown and limitations on the scholarly focus on Brown, the most powerful argument is that school desegregation was the area white Southerners would defend most passionately. I'm not alone in saying this, but there are many people who have also argued that education was really the wrong first target by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. This was the principal organization that fought for school desegregation and filed lawsuits, alongside the Justice Department during the 1960s to achieve school desegregation. But it was the NAACP-LDF that had spearheaded the Brown case in 1954. So the argument here is that it might have been better had the LDF or the NAACP or just civil rights in general worked on, say, voting rights first. And I think it's something legitimate to point out that going after the schools and desegregating the school system was going to be a really contentious arena to challenge first in the architecture of Jim Crow. Obviously, putting children together in an integrated space was going to be something that was not going to be popular among a lot of white Southerners. And there was also, of course, a lot of fear and concern among black parents about putting their kids in those situations as well. So that would be one other argument about why there were some limitations of brown I think that there's also this about in terms of limitations of the Brown ruling and then also scholarly criticisms of Brown as well, and this is controversial, but I think that one of the main limits on recognizing the significance of Brown has been the preference that many people put on integration rather than desegregation, and that's a subtle but important difference to make and the thesis here that I'm partial to and that I point out in the introduction to my book is a distinction that a scholar named Raymond Walters made in his book, Race and Education, where what Walters basically argued was that desegregation worked and integration did not. And what he meant by that was that the emphasis by the late 60s and then going into the 1970s, there was a shift in how the courts understood school desegregation to mean compulsory integration. And in the 1970s, there was a brief period of busing children and trying to achieve quotas in the school systems. And this was a national project, and it also created a tremendous widespread backlash. So there's an argument out there about going too far the way of integration when it turns compulsory. What does compulsory mean in terms of forcing people? What are the limitations on that? And so that's. It's just something to note in the scholarship and the debate about the legacy of Brown. Now, if you're talking about desegregation, though, and what Brown said, then you've got a target that society could more comfortably implement, and that just means that the simple understanding of school desegregation would be, again, that this means no more state-sanctioned school segregation, no more Jim Crow education. And to most ordinary people, to most Americans, that sounded more reasonable and more appropriate, than some form of compulsory integration. So, And, of course, there are inherent problems with simply stopping at just that as well. And that's, of course, where Alexander and Brown's progeny really made some critical interventions to end the delays. Because what you could do as a judge is if you just said, well, the law no longer says that we'll use race as a factor in excluding anyone from a school system here. If you just stop there then any anytime that you're actually not, achieve. you know, it's it's pretty easy at that point to not achieve desegregation as well. You can stop and say, well, look, I mean, the law no longer says that segregated schools are legal here. So what more do you want us to do? And that can easily turn into a system of stalling and delaying. So that's where Alexander and these other court cases in the late 60s come in. Now, the study of Alexander, I think, enhances understandings of school desegregation in at least a couple different ways. First of all, I don't think that this is something that Buddy Roy says, and it's not something that I make a point of in the book, but Alexander itself, the Alexander versus Holmes ruling, which is what I focused on in the book, was not a constitutionally novel court ruling in any sense, in terms of being something that reinterpreted things in a radically new way. But what it did, what was important about it, was that it finished what the Brown v. Board ruling had begun 15 years earlier. And it did it in a more immediate and substantial manner. No more delays, no more what was called all deliberate speed. Integration now became the imperative. And if you do the racial calculus, the number of students in racially integrated schools skyrocketed from something like 600,000 students before Alexander to 2.6 million in the 1970 to 1971 school year. So to put another way, In the fall of 1968, one year before the Alexander ruling, 14 years after the Brown v. Board ruling, 68% of black children in the South still attended all-black schools. But within a year of Alexander, the figure subsided to 18%. So Alexander really crowned this audacious upheaval that Brown had begun in the most prolific change in the history of American education. So I think that that's one way to understand the importance of Alexander with school desegregation. A second point about Alexander is that it was also the last gasp of the liberal Warren Court, of Earl Warren's Supreme Court that he had worked to put together. The Warren Court had handed down the Brown ruling back in 1954, and Warren had been very diligent about making sure that starting with Brown and then carrying on into the 1960s, that whenever the court ruled on these civil rights cases, especially in regards to the schools, that they spoke with one voice, that these would be unanimous rulings. And basically, it's understood that if the court makes a unanimous ruling, if there is no dissent, then that's a real warning to future courts that this should not be a case that should be overturned. So the Alexander decision was really the last time when you really have this unanimity among the Supreme Court justices. Now, by the time of the Alexander ruling, Earl Warren had stepped down as chief justice and Warren Burger had become chief justice. So now you had a conservative who becomes the chief justice of the court. But they still maintain this judicial phalanx that is unanimous about supporting school desegregation with Alexander. And then in the early 1970s, the court begins to shift starboard. It begins to move to the right, especially after William Rehnquist joins the court. A third comment I would make, a third point about how Alexander enhances understandings of school desegregation, and this is really on a more personal level. I think that recovering Alexander's importance helps an entire generation of Southerners understand and contextualize school desegregation in their lives. If you ask most baby boom generation Southerners when they first attended an integrated school, they'll almost invariably tell you 1970 or 1971. That's usually the year that they cite. There are some who will say 1964, or 65, when they noticed a handful of either Black students or Black teachers showing up in their school. But it's more the case that you'll find people saying 1970 or 71. And that, of course, is the result of the Alexander rulings. So there's this court case out there that brings about this monumental change in the way that people are going to school and interacting with members of another race. But most Southerners don't know that it was Alexander that did this. So those would be the main things, I guess, that I see as enhancing our understanding of school desegregation.
0: What sources did you use to craft your history of Alexander?
1: Well, one thing is, when I started out working on this case, there really was no monograph about Alexander. There was one legal journal article, and this is a Patrick Doherty article from the early 70s, and I actually – I borrowed the title of his article for my book. But Alexander was – this is a case that I kept seeing pop up in various histories of the civil rights movement, mostly legal histories. And that's actually one reason why I decided to work on the case. I kept seeing the the Alexander name mentioned in footnotes or in indices, but there was no dedicated history. And so I thought, well, this is a case that merits a book. And one of the first steps that I took, and I'm just in the habit of doing this, but I reached out to the foremost scholar on school integration in Mississippi, and that's Charles Bolton, who teaches history in the UNC system. And I asked Chuck basically what he thought about me writing on the case and whether or not he had any plans to write about Alexander specifically. And he said that he didn't, but he thought that it would make a really great topic. So once I sort of decided that I was going to to do this and that uh, I, as far as I was aware, nobody else was working specifically on the case, I started looking at sources. And fortunately for me, there were several excellent histories of Brown in the Warren court out there. There's a real corpus of literature on that. But more importantly, there was a treasure trove of easily accessible court transcripts. One of the nice things about working on legal histories is that, of course, you have the court record that's been preserved from the lowest levels, and then in this case, all the way up to the Supreme Court. So for me, the most important of these case files were in Washington, D.C., and that's where I examined uh, Supreme Court justice papers in the Library of Congress, and I also Looked at White House memos and other documents over in the National Archives, so I spent some time there working on that. There was also a good memoir on the movement in Holmes County by a former activist named Sue Sojourner, and she relied more on oral history than what I like to, but it's a very rich firsthand account of how the movement worked at the local level. And then the person who really helped me understand race and education in Holmes is Dr. Sylvia Reedy-Gist, who is a Holmes County native and an educator. And she wrote an invaluable thesis about the school system in Holmes and the history of race and education there. So Sylvia was really instrumental in helping me to line up several interviews, many people that she knew growing up or who were relatives of her but were key actors in the civil rights movement in Holmes County. So that was really uh, an important step for me to get to be able to speak with the people whose lives were lived in Holmes. And then finally, so another important source for me in doing my work was getting help from the main lawyer in the Alexander versus Holmes case, and that was Melvin Leventhal. And Mel and I talked extensively on the phone, and he was also good enough to take time away from his own law practice in New York to read the entire manuscript for me and check it for accuracy and details and offer me feedback along the way. So I was really able to benefit from a lot of different sources. And so I tried to really cover all my bases from civil rights activists and locals to lawyers who worked with people both in the county and at the national level.
0: Now, could you tell us a bit about the build-up to Alexander?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. You and most of your listeners are familiar with the Brown ruling in 1954, but to back up to that for just a second here, one of the things, again, to ask is what did and didn't Brown do? And one of the one of the problems with Brown, one of the things that it didn't do is that it didn't provide a blueprint for implementation. How are you supposed to desegregate the schools? And so the next year in 1955, the court passed what's known as the Brown II ruling, and this was the implementation decision. And the court provided language about how school desegregation was supposed to proceed and where it was supposed to proceed. And so they kicked it back to the local courts, to the lower level federal courts to implement and then the language that they used to describe this was the key language was for the pace of desegregation was all deliberate speed. And what that effectively meant, what Brown 2 basically meant, is that not one school desegregated in Alabama or Mississippi for nine years. And basically what follows the first two Brown rulings is a period of what's known as massive resistance to school desegregation, and that's the period of white Southerners reacting to and pushing back and resisting school desegregation as much as they're able to. And that's actually what I wrote my first book on was I wrote about a segregationist newspaper journalist who was a key figure in designing the fight that becomes known as massive resistance. So. Massive resistance it really took on a variety of forms in Mississippi in the Delta. The uh, citizens councils emerged there immediately after the Brown ruling, and then affiliate chapters spread to every southern state. And the citizens councils were local groups of whites. They were Not vigilantes like the Klan, but what's been referred to as sort of a middle class version of the Klan or uh, business people, civic leaders who would work to resist school desegregation locally. In Alabama, where I'm at, the state here actually banished the NAACP for a number of years as a punitive measure against the organization that they associated with school desegregation. And then in Virginia, the massive resistance, the campaign there resulted in shutting down a handful of uh, school districts to prevent desegregation from occurring. So that's the immediate backlash to, to the Brown ruling. And then in the interim between what's called massive resistance and then massive integration, which is what Alexander really ushers in, is a period of what's called freedom of choice, and this meant that black parents had the option of enrolling their children in formerly all-white schools, and this is what civil rights lawyers had initially wanted, and they worked uh, uh, in communities to recruit black families to desegregate the schools in their districts. And so there's a wave of freedom of choice suits that are filed, especially in the mid-1960s, and this led to a period of token integration. Now the main flaw in freedom of choice is that it really put the burden of desegregation on blacks and so they were regarded now as being the interlopers in the schools that had been formerly all-white schools. The children there became easy targets for white teachers or classmates and of course the parents could face retaliation in the jobs that they worked and in their employment and otherwise. Uh, And so Freedom of choice results in limited desegregation. And then in 1966, there is a ruling in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and this was in New Orleans at the time. And in 1966, the Fifth Circuit hands down what is known as the Jefferson decision. And this was the Fifth Circuit's way of recognizing the limitations of freedom of choice. Basically, the judge who wrote the opinion in Jefferson. John Minor Wisdom, who was one of the the fiercest advocates of civil rights on that court. What he said basically was that this all deliberate speed business is not amounting to any kind of widespread desegregation. In fact, it's amounting to a refusal to integrate and lots of stalling. And so we're going to need to come up with something better here if we're really serious about school desegregation. So you can see that the Fifth Circuit really puts itself in a position of, had a reputation for this throughout the 1960s of being at the vanguard of promoting civil rights. And so the Fifth Circuit is signaling that the time for freedom of choice and all delivered speed has run out. In the U.S. Supreme Court in 1968, two years later, there's what's called the Green versus New Kent County decision. And the Green decision, the Green ruling said that basically freedom of choice is okay only if it's working. If it's not working, then you can use compulsory assignment to achieve integration. And so there's about a year or more following the Green decision of noncompliance in many Southern school systems. And, you know, districts were either skirting the decision or ignoring it outright And people were trying to hang on to token integration as long as possible. Token integration really became – what a lot of segregationists found was that token integration was the best way to limit and to check school desegregation. It it meant minimal integration. So this had been a route that was favored by a lot of uh, white Southerners, ultimately more than than civil rights forces favored it. But the problem in green – is that the Supreme Court still hadn't stricken that language of all deliberate speed as the official vocabulary of school desegregation. And so that's what the Alexander versus Holmes ruling did, was that over a year later in in the fall in October of 1969, when the Alexander ruling was handed down, that was the ruling that put an end to the delays and to all deliberate speed, as Justice William Brennan said to his fellow brethren on the court, Quote, the, the fate of all deliberate speed has been resolved, end quote. So, in other words, all deliberate speed meant integration now.
0: Could you tell us about a few of the people you highlight in your telling of the history surrounding Alexandra B. Holmes?
1: Sure. I guess that when you write a history, one of the things that I learned when I was in graduate school is that it's important to have models for your work. Find some books, find writers, historians, scholars, that you like some element of of how they presented the past as a framework for how you can do your own work. And something that my dissertation advisor, Charles Eagles, integration now is is dedicated to Charles. That was something that that he taught me when I was uh, his student. And so as I started the the writing process for this book, I wanted to begin the story in a similar way to how Richard Kluger began his magisterial book on the history of the Brown ruling. And that's also why in my book, in the conclusion, I circle back around to Kluger and, and I provide a quote of his at the end and provide some symmetry there. But basically the idea there is that you build from the bottom up With the unsung people on the ground who did a lot of the grunt work to make desegregation happen. And I wanted to highlight the people who really dug deep and overcame segregation. And I tried to show what blacks could achieve if they were given the opportunity to succeed. And not in terms of being handed something, but in terms of committed individuals who could accomplish a lot with even a little. And so if you read the book's introduction, I use a quote from from the book uh, Ecclesiasticus in the Bible for the epigraph, and the epigraph is, let us now praise famous men, and the idea there is, you don't know these people, but they're important because of how they lived, and even the smallest people who are often unremembered can carry great significance. And so that was one of the things that I initially kind of had in mind with how I wanted to start telling about people in the book. and The next thing I wanted to do was to bring in the lawyers who fought in the courts, and that was my way of providing a corrective to what I saw going on in civil rights literature. A lot of scholars justifiably focused on the grassroots level of the movement, but they sometimes prioritize what are called local people in the movement over everybody else, especially figures from elite backgrounds or on the national stage. And finally, I wanted to examine the thoughts and perspective of white Southerners. For years, the white South had been really the great untold story of the civil rights era. And there has to be a respectful presentation and consideration of both civil rights and segregationist forces when you do civil rights history. Again, I I wrote my first book on a segregationist journalist on James Kilpatrick and tried to treat him as respectfully as possible when I wrote that book. Again, this is something that my dissertation advisor, Charles, taught me as well. And it's <laughs> it's something that's not easy to do, especially when you're dealing with somebody like Judge Harold Cox, who's one of the figures in integration now. Uh, Harold Cox, he was the chief judge of the Southern District Court in Mississippi. And that was the court that the Alexander versus Holmes ruling was initially filed in. It had to get out of that district in order to be heard in the U.S. Supreme Court. And Cox was somebody who was about as vile a racist judge as you can imagine. And If you read any of his quotes, it'll wake you up in the morning. It's kind of like the effect of drinking strong coffee. But even with him, though, I wanted to make sure that he was presented in as respectful and thoughtful a way as possible. And that was something that also came up when I talked with Mel Leventhal about the research of the book. Mel knew Harold Cox, had worked in that court for a number of years, fought a lot of cases before Cox. And Mel would always remind me that there is something more than what meets the eye with Judge Cox, and so that there was method to the madness that I needed to pay attention to. And Cox was somebody who was very good at stalling and thwarting desegregation as much as what was in his means. And he wasn't somebody to be ignored. He wasn't somebody to be left out of this story in any way. A federal judge, even somebody who is overruled routinely by higher courts, is somebody who still wields considerable power. And this is also, you know, focusing on white southerners has, in the last several years has been more and more the case among civil rights scholars. Lots of people have studied the segregationist side of the story as well and so it's not that it's new it's just important to recover as well and so it's always important to remember that there are two sides of every story at least two sides
0: what historical threads does your focus on holmes county allow you to explore
1: one of the things that attracted me to working on this case was I mean, I always kind of ask myself a variety of questions when I'm going to start it on a project. One of the things is, you know, what kind of sources are available to do the work? Sometimes you can have a good idea for a project, but you don't necessarily have all the right sources that you need to write something thorough. Something else that's important, I think, and this just helps you along with the years that it takes to write a book and to do all the research and the writing, is to find something that interests you and that is compelling. And fortunately for me, when I started to look at Holmes... Holmes County was an absolutely fascinating county with a really rich cast of characters. And it also had the most galvanized local movement in Mississippi, particularly considering the county's rural isolation and the extreme poverty there. If you go back and you look at the history of the county, there's all kinds of remarkable things that happened there. Lots of interesting people. There was Providence Farm, which was an interracial cooperative experiment in Christian utopianism. There was Hazel Brandon Smith, who was the Pulitzer Prize-winning editor of the Lexington Advertiser. Holmes County was home to Robert Clark, who was the first black legislator elected to the state house since Reconstruction. So there was also an incredible ensemble of people who pushed the county movement. Hartman Turnbow, for example, who was a real force in nature in the local movement. And there's even one point, and I've got a chapter on the movement in Holmes, There's a cameo by Mario Savio, who was one of the leaders of the free speech movement at Berkeley in the 60s. And the summer before Savio started the free speech movement at Berkeley, he spent time in Holmes County during the 1964 Freedom Summer. The novelist Alice Walker and Mel Leventhal were the first interracial married couple in Mississippi. So all these interesting people conveniently came together in one place in time And so it was one of the many things that really made Holmes a special place to examine. The people in that county made the movement special. They made it work, and they worked well together to gain the right to vote and then implement school desegregation. So that was one of the things that was compelling to me about a thread in Holmes, and one of the things that I wanted to explore in the book was what made this such a fascinating place. Something else that was important just in terms of looking at the history of Holmes County And trying to emphasize this in the book as much as possible, another thread that I wanted to sew throughout the the work was the importance of black land ownership. Owning land gave blacks autonomy. It made them independent of the white power structure. It gave them also a fierce independent streak that they used to carry the movement forward in home. So those were some of the things that were interesting to me about looking at that particular place.
0: How does your work's mode of viewing Alexander from the past, rather than its future, change how the history of desegregation
1: is viewed? What I was really going for there was to emphasize that the courts really did their job. And the lawyers who fought in the courts did their job. And the parents and the children who brought the school suits did their part, too. And school desegregation was a real priority for the civil rights generation. And I think that it's something that we don't want to lose track of. Today, obviously, we still ask questions about is school integration did it work? How successful was it? And one of the questions there has to be is is school integration in fact a priority for us still? And and if you look around the country, a lot of times you can see that the obvious answer is no. If you go to many places in the Black Belt today, I mean, if I drive down to Black Belt, Alabama, or if I go over to the Mississippi Delta, there is very little, there's precious little school integration that occurred there over the years. And you find a lot of all black or prominently black schools to this day and a lot of whites who have fled into the private schools. And if you look in a lot of the cities across the country, some regions more than others, the same case. Now, one of the things that I think that we need to factor in here also, I mean, this is now the 50th anniversary of Alexander versus Holmes, and it's the 65th anniversary year of the Brown decision, so a lot of time has gone by here. And obviously today, if we're going to revisit school integration, We have to also factor in more things like this isn't just a binary, a white-black binary anymore. When we're thinking about school integration, we have to think about Latinos. We have to think about Asian Americans. And so the complexity of this today is probably even more complicated. We also have to remember that people today talk more about diversity than they do about integration. So the language and the focus and goals have changed. And so I think, though, that one of the things that we have to ask is whether or not school integration is still a priority or not. And one of the things that has made it so that we don't necessarily make that a priority or why that it's not the focus anymore is that you know during the 1960s the federal government really zeroed in on the south and and helped the movement to eliminate segregation and to enforce civil rights rulings and make school desegregation happen. Today There's not an obvious, to my mind, there's not an obvious region that you would zero in on. So that's something that's unlike the civil rights era. And we also need to ask ourselves whether or not schools should be the principal site for integration or not. Education tends to get the lion's share of attention because that's where the battle for integration erupted. Are the schools also today where this battle should be playing out, or not? there's some striking there's a lot of striking differences from today going back fifty years ago. One of the notable things, of course, is even though there have been a lot of frustrations about the extent of school integration in the country, today you look around and you can see that integration is working more and more in terms of acceptance of interracial dating and marriage, so social integration can mean a variety of things. And I guess that when I was emphasizing this in the book, none of this is to say that we don't need to revisit school desegregation. There are many school districts across the nation that still need constant reexamination to make sure that they're complying with the federal statutes. And there are certainly desegregation lawyers across the country who still apply what are known as the green factors to make sure that unitary school systems are observing the rules that were predicated in 1968 and 1969. But I guess that part of this in saying, you know, that we need to consider things from the past rather than from the present is if school integration is going to be a priority for us, then we also need new solutions. And that's something that in the book and in my final footnote of the book, I included a quote by Harvard legal scholar Randall Kennedy. And this is from a book review from a few years ago that Kennedy wrote. And in it, he made this point. He said, To address adequately the crises we confront will require more than habitual incantations of Brown and other landmarks of prior struggles. It will require forging altogether new laws, new doctrines, and new understandings pertinent to the demands of our time. And I really liked that stuck out with me. I liked what he wrote because he was saying, you know, that passing the torch here puts the onus on the present. Now I'm also just I'm also the the kind of historian who you know whenever you're whenever you're writing a history of course there's always going to be a tension between how much of the present do you bring into your examination of the past and and I don't I don't know that any historian can fully escape that but I think that it is an obligation to try to understand the past from its own vantage point as much as possible and so that was part of the idea with what I was doing in the book as well but I'm also somebody who believes that the movement fundamentally succeeded in a lot of different ways. And if we only look or point out the failures or the limitations of school integration, then we miss all the victories that came along the way, too. We miss gaining the black vote, which led to the first black president. We miss the elimination of public racism and the creation of a more inclusive nation, which came from the 1964 Civil Rights Act. We miss the end of discriminatory hiring practices, more education opportunities, interracial marriage, and so on. So there are a number of things that we can lose sight of. But we also lose the magnitude and the scope of what was won in 1969 with the Alexander ruling. We lose the context and the moment if we read history from the present, rather than trying to from the past. If we step back 50 years ago, we can see how much struggle it took to end the dual school system. We don't even talk about unitary schools anymore because Alexander eradicated dual school systems. This was the last vestige, uh, not the last vestige, but it was certainly a really key vestige of Jim Crow education. And then if you step back 100 years from Alexander to 1869, just after the Civil War, there was no public education system in the South. There was no public school system in this region until African Americans invented public schools in the South, and they died for it. If you go back even further into slavery, slave literacy was criminalized. So you can see by trying to step back in the past and recover these different key points here, I think it becomes easier to point out the moments when there was resistance to this onslaught against Black education and intelligence in American history. And Alexander's significance in rectifying that deficit is just one component of what Dr. Martin Luther King called the long arc of history bending toward justice. So that was all part of my thinking in terms of trying to consider Alexander from the past rather than from the future of what happened in the 50 years afterward.
0: How does your work push against how many historians have either focused on litigation or social movements, or even frame things as litigation versus social movements. How does your work do things differently?
1: The tension between litigation and, and protest is one that goes back to the civil rights era itself. This is something that, if you go back to the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 and 56, this is something that you could see changing in Martin King's thinking about whether or not to proceed through the courts or whether direct action was the more viable route. I think in terms of scholarship, to my mind, there's really, I don't know that there's a need for a really stark divide between litigation and social movements. I think that ending Jim Crow education was a two-front campaign. It was one that occurred in the courts, and it also played out in communities. And I think that there's definitely a preference today for the grassroots level over anyone from an elite background. So I think that one of the things that you have to factor into the question about litigation versus social movements is also this debate about the grassroots and where the impetus for change really came from during the civil rights struggle. And so there's a tendency by a number of scholars to emphasize that the grassroots level amounted to more and was more genuine and substantial than changes that were generated from people from a more elite background, and that often includes lawyers and those who who to work through the court system, which was a much more the juridical um I'm sorry the the juridical approach was a more methodical and gradual strategy that was used by the n a a c p and not everybody favored that approach i don't know if your listeners would be familiar with the Journal of Southern history or not, but a couple of years ago in 2016, Alan Draper really wrote a nice historiographical essay about what he saw as the overblown nature of most scholars to prize the grassroots movement over people from a more elite background. So Draper really noted that there was a class element in the arguments that people were making about pointing out these differences. And so when I was writing my book, I relied on Draper's work to inform my perspective on how to understand what the movement was doing in homes and then the cooperation between lawyers and the grassroots level. And so one of the things first really and foremost was that, that I, I guess I'd remind people of or, or that I really emphasize in the book is that most African-Americans took help from anywhere that they could find it, and they didn't always make the same distinctions that we do. And so if, if you get into my footnotes in the book, I use this story from the Swedish scholar Gunnar Myrdal, who wrote An American Dilemma, which is in many ways the Bible for beginning study of the civil rights movement. And he's got this great story about this journalist who goes into the southern city and he's speaking with local blacks about racial issues and trying to get the tone of the place. And he asks this one leader who's in the NAACP. About race and, and efforts for reform in the city, and so they're having a conversation. And then he kind of finishes up the the conversation. He concludes, and he says, he asks the guy, "Well, where can I find a, a spokesman for a more radical black voice in the community?" And the guy just turns to him really matter of factly and says, "You're basically," he says, "You're you're talking to him." And I really like that a lot because Myrdal was, was recognizing there, and you know that was a book that came out in 1944 that many times black leaders in communities would have multiple affiliations with lots of different organizations. They could be in the NAACP and they could be in other groups as well. And so that was part of my thinking and trying to break down some of that dichotomy between different forces at work within the movement. And then something else that I looked at in the book and found in researching Holmes County was that if you look at how the movement worked in Holmes – The conflict between litigation and social movements really wasn't present there. I mean, it was members of the local movement who had sought out lawyers. They had gone to Marion Wright, and they had gone to the LDF office in Jackson, and they, they asked for lawyers to come in to help them to work on school desegregation after they had achieved voting rights. And so there wasn't this obvious tension between how that played out. And the lawyers came in, Mel Leventhal came in, and they worked to recruit Black families. And in Holmes, they had quite a lot of participation in enrollment during that freedom of choice era. And also, when you look at the divisions within the movement in Holmes County, kind of trying to put things in sort of a grassroots versus the elite perspective didn't really work there. Because in Holmes, the Black bourgeoisie, they were landowners. They had property. They had means. And so the black farmers were the elite, and they were also the leaders of the grassroots movement.
0: I really want to thank you for being on the show today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. This is great to talk to you.